Demi Virgen with Sinclair Broadcasting. Thank you for joining us again for a new edition of Immigration Crisis, the fight for the southern border. I worked for the oil company and handled confidential information. They thought I was infiltrating info out and they beat me. We had to leave the country. From Eagle Pass, Texas, we have gotten late-breaking news, a big change announced by the Department of Homeland Security, a change that will affect Venezuelan immigrants seeking to come into the United States. They will now be returned if they cross illegally to Mexico. Now, the new program is very similar to the one that the administration did for the Ukrainians earlier this year. The Venezuelans will have to apply, have a sponsor in the U.S., and they will also have to undergo screening and vetting, as well as have all of their vaccinations. Up to 24,000 Venezuelans will be accepted, according to DHS. Now, that program is coming in the heels of the new numbers that have come out for fiscal year 2021-22. This, of course, comes in the middle of an influx of immigrants coming in from Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba, and also Nicaragua. Now we're going to go straight with Chief of Border Patrol in the Del Rio sector, Chief Owens. Let me ask you the interest that you all get from all over the world. People wanting to know, what do they ask you? What do the reporters from all over the world ask you when they call you? Well, right off the bat, they, a lot of them ask, is it true? You know, is, are things really uh, this busy down on the border? Uh, we've had people, not just uh, uh, journalists, but, but we've had people from New York City. We've had uh, different uh, congressional delegations from, from all over the country that come down to, to see for themselves what's actually happening. You know, is it as busy as is being portrayed? And, and so, yeah, the first, the first answer is it is very busy. And, uh, is it a humanitarian crisis is another question that, that we get asked and absolutely it is a humanitarian crisis. Are, are we seeing people that are being put into harm's way that are, that are taking that irregular migration route? Yes, uh, I've said this from the beginning, as soon as they leave their homes and they put themselves in the hands of these smugglers and these cartels, they are in harm's way. Uh, we, the most visible part here in Del Rio sector, of course, are the drownings and the people that we find locked in containers and, and, uh, and in the desert. But make no mistake about it, at all points along the way, they're, they're in danger. So it, it is a humanitarian crisis because of the lives that are being put in danger at the hands of the cartels and from the people that, ha that have died. I, I expect when the numbers come out for this fiscal year that our deaths in the Del Rio sector alone are going to be well over 250. 250 people died that we know of. And this does not count the numbers that the government of Mexico found. This does not count the numbers that other uh, authorities have found. This is just what the United States Border Patrol has found, either in the river, in the deserts, or in the containers that, that, we've, uh, that we've found the migrants that have died trying to make this journey to cross the border illegally. What are you ending up, and I'm going to start at the end, tell us about this year. What did you end up with? What I know that it's still preliminary, but what is the difference between this year and last year? And last year you and I talked about this, so what's the difference? So 
And when the numbers finally come out, I expect that those numbers will be between 470,000 and 500,000 apprehensions that the Del Rio sector made this fiscal year. So we're just waiting on those numbers from September to, to come in and tally to, the, uh, to the, the entire fiscal year. What's significant about that is that is more than any other sector in the country this past fiscal year, we, we beat uh, sectors like San Diego, Tucson, RGV, El Paso, and we're a small sector with, with, with small communities. The previous fiscal year, in fiscal year uh, 2021, and remember you and I had talked, uh, we apprehended 259,000 in change. And that was a record-breaking year for us, so much so that it was more than the previous nine fiscal years combined in terms of apprehensions. And we nearly doubled that this year. That's how busy this sector has been. We are doing the best we can with the limited manpower. And what you need to understand is we're a very, very poor county. We couldn't hardly make budget before all this occurred. Now, we're running way behind. We're fighting for our border. Kenny County has 17 miles on the border. We have no municipality on the border. So they're coming through here in droves. Texas has 1,200 miles of border with Mexico. So we're looking at almost, almost half of the border and we are seeing a significant increase in all stations in all counties. And I have never, ever seen what we're seeing today. When we talked last year, did you imagine you were gonna have the year that you had in 2022? Not to this degree. Uh, we all expected that it was going to be very busy. Uh, we, we, the, the indications were that the, the flow was going to continue to increase and it was gonna continue here in the Del Rio sector, particularly in Eagle Pass. But quite honestly, you never really know uh, what, what you're going to see, what, what the, the full extent is going to be. So this was a, this was a very trying year for us, uh, you know, not just from an operational standpoint, but you know, from a, a morale standpoint, from, a, from an emotional standpoint. You, you know all the other things that took place this past year too. Uh, I feel like the men and women here at this sector have, uh, have, have proven themselves in so many ways. They, they've done uh, uh, such a wonderful job not just trying to get out there and keep everybody safe, the lives that they've saved, but also the humanitarian side. You know, I, I, the things that I get to see every day, what these men and women do in service to their communities and to the migrants that are coming across. That for me, uh, and I, I say this all the time, oftentimes in the face of the most dire circumstances or, or the worst conditions, you see the very best in people, and that never fails to happen when it comes to the men and women that wear this uniform. Talk to us about the difference. I mean, we ended the year with thousands of people from Haiti trying to cross through your sector, mm -hmm. and now that has changed. The face of who's coming through has completely changed. It has, uh, and if you talk to different sectors, you're going to hear different demographics are, are crossing because of the pipelines and the routes that are established. When we finished off fiscal year 21, it was predominantly Haitians that, uh, that, that were coming across in this sector. That transitioned away from uh, folks from Haiti and to now we see predominantly people from Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And most recently we've started to sh see a shift from uh, here on the part of the Venezuelans over to El Paso. So the majority of what we see now 
are the Cubans and Nicaraguans that are that are coming through this area. We still have people from, you know, the Northern Triangle countries. We still have people from Mexico. And in fact, this past fiscal year, we had people from 118 different countries cross illegally uh, through the Del Rio sector. But the, by far, the predominant uh, demographics that we saw were people from the uh, countries of Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and mostly single adults. If you talk to RGV, for example. They have a much higher incidence of family units and unaccompanied children. We do have family units and unaccompanied children, but far and away the largest demographic that we had were single adults. That change that you're seeing, especially with Venezuela and Colombia, what is going on? What is the message that they're getting that they're coming this way now? And we know what's going on in the country, especially with Venezuela, you know, what's going on with their government right mm -hmm. now. But what has what has switched? What are they telling you when they come here? Well, they word of mouth is is a powerful tool among any population, but also among the migrant population. So you have folks that have crossed through this area that are coming from those countries, and and they talk to their friends and family back home who are also thinking about making that journey, and they they'll tell them, hey, it was it was quick, it was easy, it was safe. Whether that's true or not, that's the message that's being delivered, and that tends to bring people uh, this way. And the perception is that uh, that they're going to be released in short order, and they can they can continue to travel into the into the United States. That uh, that it is safe because there's not as much cartel activity here in this particular area of the border. What they can't know, and what they don't say, is. It is extremely dangerous no matter where you try and cross. The, the, the best way to come across and come into the United States as a migrant is the legal way because you're not in the hands of the cartels. You're not in the hands of the smugglers that we've all seen abandon them in the middle of the desert. We've all seen get into high-speed chases and crash and kill people. We've all seen these folks extort these migrants for additional money. Do you know, I was just talking to the, uh, the consulates from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and we were having a discussion about the deaths that we've, that we've seen this past, this past fiscal year. We went out to the, the cemetery in Maverick County where some of the ones that we have not been able to identify are buried. It's, very, uh, that's a, it's a very stoic place. It's, a very, it's, it's hard to, uh, to look at. And uh, talking to them, they have had families that have come to them and said, we've been extorted for money, for more money, so that our loved one can be released. In some cases, it's been for the better part of a year. When the smuggler knew all along that that migrant had perished out in the desert months ago, that's the kind of callous individual that exists that, that trades in human lives, that is a, a smuggler, that's a human trafficker, knowing that this person has died to still go out and extort that family who lost somebody that was dear to them and continue to extort them for money for months on end. That's who we're up against. That is our adversary. And it's not just our adversary. It is your adversary. It is the American people's adversary. It is the adversary to the migrants because they are the ones that pose the biggest threat to those folks. When, and you just mentioned that, how many do you really identify out of the ones that you get, out of the migrants that die, how often do you, are you not identifying someone and there's probably a family wondering what happened to them? Well, so, and this is another aspect of the Border Patrol that a lot of people aren't aware of. We actually have a program called the Missing Migrant Program, and we dedicate agents to that task. 
Nobody else does this. Uh, th there is not an effort done uh, in, in Mexico that I'm aware of. There is not an, a, an effort that's done uh, by the, other than the medical examiners and, and the local police departments, but we bridge that gap where we try and get the, the, the biometric data from the individual that's passed and we work with the government of Mexico, we work with the state and local authorities so that the families can at least have closure. And these folks that are, that are, that are part of this missing migrant program, they do this not for any extra pay, they do it voluntarily because this matters to them. And some of the things they have to see and deal with on a day-to-day -day basis just to give that family closure, just to be able to return their loved one home to them in some cases. You, you're talking about somebody that has to go and see people that have been deceased for long periods of time, try to get identification, fingerprints, anything that's on them to help try and make that, uh, that identification. We're not able to do it all the time. Sometimes uh, the, the person is too far gone. Uh, sometimes we find uh, folks that are out in the desert, for example, that it may just be skeletal remains and, and nothing else. And so there are times when nobody is able to identify that person and unfortunately that family is left forever wondering what happened to their loved one and, and where they are and they will never get that closure. How do you quantify that or how do you, how do you tell somebody or explain to somebody what that does to a family, what that does to uh, an individual to not know? So that's a very important program for us because we see this each and every day and you can't help when you're seeing these tough situations but put yourselves in that place and, and see it. One, if it was your loved one that was in that, uh, in that position, you would hope somebody would do that for you. And that's what these men and women that are part of this program have been doing. And this program's been around for years. It doesn't get talked about. Talk to me about this year. If you're looking at a timeline, and I know you start your fiscal year in October, mm -hmm. but if we're talking from the beginning of this fiscal year, talk to us about the timeline. When when did you see the waves? What were the waves? When were the lulls? Well, that that's a <laughs> that's another thing that I would, in times past, be able to tell you. Well, typically in the holidays we'll see a lull, and and typically after the holidays we'll start to see an increase, and in, in the later summer months, that's not the case anymore. It is just the the valve is open all the time. Uh, so we're not necessarily seeing those those trends. It's just 24/7 ongoing. Whereas, and I'll, and I'll tell you, just from having done this job for you know going on three decades now, the uh, I believe it's because in times past when I was out on patrol in in the 90s, and you know we would have mostly single adult males that would cross from Mexico and economic migrants, and they would work and they would send money home, and the holidays they they'd go back home. And then right after the holidays, they'd come back again. And so that kind of drove those patterns that we talked about. That's not the case right now. That's not what we're seeing. We don't just see uh, economic migrants. We don't just see, we're seeing folks that are uh, asylum seekers. We're seeing folks that are coming because they have an intention of staying here. They want to they come and move here. And those are the ones that we're talking to saying, this country needs immigration. Nobody argues that point. Uh, it needs to be done in a safe and orderly manner. And uh, it's not worth it to you to put yourselves in harm's way and risk your life or the life of your loved ones to go this route. And we're saying that because we've seen uh, what happens. But to your original point, that I think that's why we don't see those traditional traffic patterns that, uh, that, that you're talking about where in the holidays it might drop and then afterwards it picks up.
aquí tuvimos que dejarlo en el camino. Te pueden secuestrar, te pueden robar, te pueden... Y yo dejé a mis papás, que son dos personas mayores, y todos mis hermanos están fuera del país. Quedaron ellos nada más, ellos dos solos en Venezuela. ¿Sabes? No es fácil. Recién cuando salí estaba la acción fuerte, pues era imposible comprar alimentos. Pero buscamos un futuro, recién graduada. Ahorita estoy desempleada porque ya que no cuento con la documentación necesaria, no me pueden hacer un contrato. When did you start seeing the Venezuelans, the numbers of Venezuelans going up? It was early last year. Early last year we started seeing, uh, particularly, not just the Venezuelans, but the, the folks coming from Cuba and from Nicaragua as well. Those three for the past, uh, well, the better part of last fiscal year were, were our predominant demographic. Um, the new patterns, especially for the Cubans. Mm. So I guess word got out that the Darien jungle wasn't necessarily where you want to go. But what is allowing them now to go directly into Nicaragua to then make their way up? Well, so, and, and you and I had talked about that, uh, that, that Darien Gap. Both you and I have been down in that area, and it, is, it, it was an exceedingly dangerous place, and I understand yeah, it still is. It's been some time since I've got, to, I've got to go down there. But the transnational criminal organizations, the cartels, and I was just reading a uh, uh, Center for Immigration Studies uh, article about that, and they, they talked about uh, you're seeing a shift from narcotics over towards the human smuggling and human trafficking side. Why? Because they see that as a huge, very lucrative source of income. And so they look at the migrants like they would anything else as a product, as a commodity. And they establish pipelines that facilitate the movement of that commodity. And so you see that being facilitated and, and it's making it easier for these folks to, uh, to get to these spots where they can actually get to the border and, and make the entry. But all the while, as I said, they're in the hands of, of, these, uh, of these criminals. And it talked about how uh, so much money is going into the hands of these criminals because of this, of this human trafficking, human smuggling. We're talking estimated of billions of dollars a year that then goes to the hands of these cartels who then use it for uh, bribes, to purchase weapons, to purchase narcotics, to destabilize the communities that are, that are on the south side uh, in Mexico, that uh, we're actually funding an adversary that is causing the problem that we're seeing at the border by letting this human trafficking, this human smuggling take place. It's, we estimated this last fiscal year on a weekly basis in the Del Rio sector alone, upwards of $35 million a week in revenue just in human smuggling. And that's, that's in this little sector. Imagine what it looks like across the entirety of the border and into the interior and other countries where these folks are coming from. What is your mission? Do you write the laws? And I've asked you mm -hmm. this before. Yep. Do you write the laws? <laughs> so no, we don't. And 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 uh, you know, just by way of level setting on a, on a, on a civics level, we you know we are part of the executive branch. Our job is to enforce the laws, uh, the laws that are written and enacted by Congress, and then interpreted by the judicial branch. So our our function is simply to enforce the laws that the American people charge us with enforcing. Our mission is border security. Our mission is to keep bad things and bad people from coming into this country illegally that would do it, its people, and our way of life harm. By nature, the fact that we are here on the border, we also have an immigration mandate. But it would be a mistake to let those two issues be conflated into one. They are completely separate. 
when we talk about the influx or the humanitarian crisis impacting the border security mission, that's because when we're dealing with this humanitarian crisis, when we are dealing with the, the influx coming across our borders, we can't be out on patrol doing the border security mission. And that comes to the detriment of everybody else in this country who depend on us to keep those bad things and bad people from coming in. So that's, we will always do a humanitarian mission. We will always be there to try and do our best to help folks that are, that are in harm's way. I've seen it, uh, I've talked to you about it before. I've seen men and women in this uniform mixing formula, uh, changing diapers of unaccompanied children, bringing toys from home uh, and to give to the kids, uh, clothing, you name it. And they do this because they're human beings and, and they care, and that will always be the case. But the American people have a U.S. Border Patrol for a specific mission and purpose, and I believe they want us out there doing that mission and serving that purpose. And as long as we have this humanitarian uh, uh, crisis to deal with, we're not going to be able to fully engage in that. Who gets to stay and who gets to leave right now, where you're at right now? So for us right now, and that, that's a great question because I think it's one that needs to be, uh, needs to be clarified as well. Everybody that we encounter, we are arresting. We are taking into custody, whether they are giving themselves up or whether we are having to actually pursue and, and capture them. We are obligated to uh, intervene when we see a violation of law occur. So when somebody crosses the border, we are obligated to take them into custody because at that point we believe they have committed an incursion and entered the country in violation of law at a point other than the port of entry. Okay. When that happens, that person is afforded due process. We are not judge, jury, and executioner. We are not able to just say, nope, you have to go back, because then we would be denying them their due process. They get their day in court, whether that be before a criminal judge or before an administrative immigration judge. They are afforded that due process. And so they get entered into the system, and they are transferred from our custody over to ICE ERO, where under normal circumstances, they would be held until their court date. And at that court date, the judge would decide, do they have the right to remain in this country or not? If they do, they stay. If they don't, they're removed back to their country. ICRO, or anybody for that matter, does not have a half a million beds to hold people until their immigration court hearing. They get overwhelmed just like we do. The immigration courts, the U.S. Attorney's offices, they get overwhelmed as well. So that sometimes those court dates can be months, if not years, into the future. So not only would we have to have a half a million beds to hold these folks, we would have to hold them for months or years. That's simply not possible. And to try and do that would cause overcrowding and unsafe conditions for the migrants and for the officers and agents that, uh, that, that have to take care of them. And so ICRO has to look for alternatives. And that's where you start seeing the alternative to detention, which is the ankle bracelet, or you, the, the cell phones. That's where you start seeing folks that are being released and given a notice to appear. They're released on their own recognizance pending that court date, or they're paroled into the country pending that court date. And these are folks that we have done our level best to make sure do not pose a threat, do not have criminal backgrounds, and uh, are simply coming because they want to stay here. Will those folks show up for the court date? I don't know. I'd like to think that they would. 
Is it fair to say that, that some won't? Sure, there's always going to be uh, elements that, that, that don't. But that's the way the system is working right now. So whenever you hear the term catch and release, that's what it is. They're, they're actually being arrested and they're actually being charged with entering the country illegally. And we're saying we don't believe they have the right to stay here, but they get their day in court. And we cannot deny them that due process. That is our law. That's what makes this country great. And so while they're waiting for that court date, unless they're being held in a detention center by ICRO or somebody else, they are released on their own recognizance or paroled into the country until that court date happens. Let me ask you, I think the from all the moments, the things that still kind of stick out, and I know there's still a few hundred children that have not been reunited with families. Mm -hmm. Compared to that, period of time where they were being separated from families to now. How have things changed? Is that still, you know, something that you're having to deal with? So, no. We keep the family units intact. What we try and make sure happens is that the, the children are actually members or related to the individuals that brought them over. That's very important to us because we do have these same criminal organizations that are using children to try and make fake family units to facilitate folks making it into the country. They're exploiting these kids, and then in some cases in terrible conditions. So we make every effort to make sure that that kid is safe and belongs with that family member or that guardian. And if they do, we keep them together. Only under very limited uh, circumstances would they be separated. And that's if we determine that they are not part of that, uh, of that family, or if this person has grievous criminal background that they have to be prosecuted and they need to actually be going the criminal route, be held in, in jail and go before a federal court judge for, uh, for criminal violations, that also would not be safe for, for that child. So we've refined it and made it so that only under the very limited set of circumstances does a separation occur and that child is uh, monitored and tracked. Uh, throughout the entirety of their stay, whether it's with uh, ORR or with, uh, with a foster parent, so that we always know where they are. How bizarre, and I'm almost done here, how bizarre was it for you this year? I know it was bizarre for us to drive up and not see anyone at a checkpoint. Mm. I mean, how difficult was that for you guys to do when you know that this is one of the things that you do to stop trafficking? From a, from a law enforcement standpoint, it's, it's scary. I mean, uh, you know, it's scary to not have uh, as many agents out in the field as we think we need. It's, it's, it's scary to not have, you know, the detection technology or the infrastructure that we think we need because we know what the threat is. We, we hear about the threat that, uh, that potentially faces uh, the folks in our, in our country day, on a daily basis, and we know that we are the ones that are standing between them and that threat. So the checkpoint is just one aspect of that. The checkpoint gives us that, that layered approach to that defense. It gives us a defense in depth posture. Most people think of the border as just, as just one single line and, and you only see border patrol, border patrol agents on that line as frontline interdiction. It goes so much deeper than that. By having those checkpoints, you are denying your adversary the egress routes away from the border into the interior. You're making it where they can't use those freely and forcing them to take more difficult routes that increases our ability to detect and apprehend them. At the same time, we have people down in Mexico in the embassies working with 
our government of Mexico partners. Most people don't realize that the government of Mexico is taking a very active stance in trying to address this migration flow. They have checkpoints for traffic coming up to the border. We have Sedena, we have Fuerzas Coila, we have Inami, all of whom are very close partners that are working with us to try and make sure that those migrants are rescued from the hands of the smugglers and they're not brought up to the border where they cross into the country illegally. It's to their benefit as well. So when we talk about border security, it's important to remember it is not just that frontline interdiction. It's not just the agents that you see out in the green and white Tahoes that are patrolling. That checkpoint is a critical piece of it. Our relationships and the operations in, in, in the government of Mexico are critical pieces of it. The information sharing with our, with our state and local partners and programs like Operation Stone Garden are critical pieces of it because we all have a synergistic effect on each other and our mission sets. And that's why I say, especially since 9-11, law enforcement is a team sport. We learned a hard lesson. We broke down those silos. We still need to get better at it. We still we, we continue to evolve and get better. But you don't care who gets credit. You don't care whose case it is. You only care that that bad guy gets taken off the street and is not able to do that illicit activity anymore. The checkpoints and the entirety of the system are just a piece of that. And the changing face of the coyote, I forgot to ask you about that. We just had a 17-year-old girl who died in Uvalde mm -hmm. with several people that she was transporting in her vehicle. So, and this is another example of just how callous these, uh, these, these organizations are, these smugglers are. They're enticing our teens, our, our, our young population with money to come down and, and drive these load vehicles. They don't know, at least I don't think they have the full uh, you know, idea of what they're getting into. And when us or DPS or one of the local uh, law enforcement uh, agencies tries to stop them, they run and they're getting killed. The migrants are dying. They're putting the communities in danger. But the smugglers, the organizations, are doing that because they want our youth placed in harm's way while they're safe in Mexico away from us where we can't reach them. That's just one of the many tactics that they're using. They're, they're leveraging GPS technology, sending the, sending the migrants to walk through the desert on their own. In case the battery goes dead, they're just they're they're lost, and the smugglers aren't there, and they, we can't apprehend them. They're doing anything and everything they can to minimize the danger to themselves while they're still able to make that money. And this latest tactic that you mentioned is just is just one, and it it's just another example of how they don't care about anybody. They don't care about you. They don't care about us. They don't care about the migrants. They don't care about those kids that they're enticing down here to drive those vehicles, and they certainly don't care about these border communities. All they care about is that dollar. When we were on the border, I mentioned that there were these wristbands, these colored wristbands, just laying on, the, laying on the ground, hundreds of them. So I just reached down and picked up one. This one's colored white, this one's green, this one's yellow, this one is white. These correspond to the thousands of dollars that illegal immigrants owed the cartels. This yellow one in particular is quite small. It's worn by a child. It's not cut. The child's hand, she or he was small enough that their hand slipped out from under this. 
These are the incidents of human slavery. This child, don't think of these as pieces of plastic. Think of these as leg irons worn by slaves because this is a little child who is starting life owing thousands of dollars to drug cartels and trapped in involuntary servitude. We're now joined by Derry Robinette. He's retired Homeland Security Investigations. He was the special agent in charge here in South Texas. Derry, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, good morning. Good morning, and we're going opposite ways. You're driving towards Austin. I'm driving back towards the border today. Um, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. We were talking about the numbers. There right now, the preliminary numbers are looking like we're going to close out the year in Texas at about 490, 500,000 apprehensions this year. Your reactions to that high number? Uh, I, I feel sorry for the agents and officers that are at the border trying to deal with these numbers. It's just that we've never been staffed up to handle this, this, this kind of volume. When we're talking about staffed up, and, and of course we have uh, Border Patrol Chief uh, Owens who spoke to us about the exact numbers, but when you're talking about staffing for people that don't understand what happens when you get so many immigrants coming in all at the same time? Well, look, there. Obviously, these offices have are are have X amount of agents and officers working there. Uh, they have X amount of space. They have a certain capacity. In other words, they are capable of handling X amount of processing X amount of aliens, conducting X amount of investigations. And when you have numbers like the ones we're seeing today, it, it o overwhelms the ability of those offices to, uh, you know, perform at the level that they should be performing at. And, you know, what scares me is, uh, is at what expense? In other words, what is it that's not being done? So one of the things that we noticed and we talked about was at the height of it, back when we had the huge Asian wave or a Haitian wave of people coming in, the checkpoints were literally unmanned. I think that is the first time in my life that I have seen a checkpoint unmanned in the state of Texas. What does that tell you when you see it like that? I mean, it, it's, again, they're having to move resources to try to, it's, it, to, try to address the, the numbers that, again, uncontrollable numbers. Uh, and I've said this many, many, many times, you know, at today, unfortunately, the aliens are dictating what we can and can't do along the border. Uh, you know, CBP, DHS, they're having to shuffle resources to try to ad address the, the spiking numbers. And again, it's at, the, it's at the cost of something. And in, in your example, obviously, it's at the cost of manning the, uh, the checkpoints. How important are those checkpoints, not only to stop anybody who's coming in, you know, under the radar, but also on the side of Homeland Security investigations? You guys get a lot of investigations from people that they do stop at the checkpoints, correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the checkpoints serves as a choke point where, you know, aliens, drugs are, are detected. Um, you know, the, by not having people manning those checkpoints, those are opportunities, uh, lost opportunities for us to conduct investigations. And unfortunately, it's, it's, it's those times where smugglers feel they have a better chance to get through the checkpoints. I mean, it's the checkpoints have always been a challenge for many of the smugglers. Uh, the checkpoints usually would route the smugglers through private lands, private ranches, uh, to avoid the checkpoints. And uh, when we don't man the checkpoints, it just makes it that much easier for them to move further into the interior of Texas and in the United States. The other thing that we have noticed, and with those high numbers, of course, you have people being smuggled in. Those are the people that are not accounted for in the 500,000. So what the other thing is that we have really noticed the last, probably the last six weeks, is the number of people bringing undocumented in, bringing them under the radar that are younger. We just had the case in Ovalde where it was a 17-year-old female from Austin who lost control, crashed the car right in the center, in the city center. Why? How? I mean, I, I can't, you know, I have an 18-year-old. I still cannot wrap my head around how a 17-year-old would get involved and why they would pick someone so young for the people that don't know. Can you explain that? Well, look, first of all, we, we can look back and come up with many, many, many examples of alien smuggling operations, investigations that we've been involved in where we discovered uh, in, in, in these investigations where, you know, you had fatalities where the drivers were, uh, um, you know, smugglers that were 15, 16, 17 years of age. Um, I mean, we're, we're not short on, on those type of cases. Uh, the bottom line is, you know, the money's there, the opportunity's there. I mean, the smugglers, they're, they're looking at what's the best way to avoid detection or draw any attention. And if it's using juveniles, they're going to do that. I mean, they don't play by any rules. At this point, your opinion, what needs to be done? I mean, the, the 500,000 in Texas alone, it just, I, I can't even imagine it. So what do you think needs to be done? And I mean, we, we understand it. We hear it. There's Venezuela. There's a lot of stuff going on. Venezuela, Colombia, and Cuba seem to be the top three right now. But what can be done? Well, look, first of all, you know, we look at the apprehensions. But I, I think what, what, what scares me is the get, the, what they call now the getaways. You know, those individuals that were, they weren't able to process, they weren't able to apprehend. And, uh, you know, there is a, we can, we can debate just how those numbers are calculated. Uh, you know, we can say they're, they're X amount. It could be twice that amount. Um, at the end of the day, there is no 100% proof of just how many uh, individuals got away and didn't get apprehended. Uh, obviously, you know, if, if I'm somebody who, if encountered, uh, would be subject to being deported because of my prior criminal history or something like that. You know, I'm afraid those are the kind of people that are part of the getaways. Uh, uh, when you go back to say, so what can we do? How do we control this? 
you know, obviously, we've always been challenged throughout administrations. Uh, there's no doubt from what I've seen, in my opinion, that uh, at least during this administration, the numbers of guidance have skyrocketed like none of us have ever seen before. And, you know, when I look at, you know, what is it? What's causing it? And again, I go back to is what 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 message is the countries the U.S. sending to these countries that have uh, migrants that are desperate to leave those countries? And we, you know, we've all we've always been we've done better, we've done worse. You know, at this time, the message that we're sending is that you know if you can make it here at whatever cost. Because we never want to talk about some of the dangers and, and the extreme uh, risks that they they take to get here. But if you can make it at, at any cost, uh, you know there's there's going to be groups, the government. There's going to be a process by which you have a chance to, to remain in the United States. And of course, as we've seen, you know, for those who for whatever reason uh, don't succeed in legally getting any kind of asylum or any kind of benefit. Um, the chances of trying to locate these individuals and apprehend them is, is are very slim. Um, you know, it, it's, it's always a challenge when you have individuals that have basically made it into the interior, started a family, had, you know, children born here, then all of a sudden they become, they're apprehended and, and now they're subject to deportations and then you know, ICE becomes the ugly person because, you know, we've had a problem that we've literally kicked down the road. And now, unfortunately, after the individual has set up residency, set up a family, uh, they become subject to deportations. And then it becomes a, you know, one of those horror stories that we have to deal with because, uh, you know, you're going to always find 50% to say you should deport them, 50% say you shouldn't. So it's it's a it's a no win situation. You know, we have to be consistent in our message. I mean, it cannot be gray. It's got to be black and white. There's got to be consequences for violating our immigration laws. Uh, we can't we can't manage the border unless we can unless we can, you know, have consequences to violating those rules. And and right now, you know, as we've seen, uh, as the numbers come up, we find ways to allow more more of these individuals to uh to be processed and be released into the country yeah it just seems like it's a never-ending story and with elections coming up you know immigration is going to continue being one of the hot topics especially here in the state of texas we have the governor's race coming up you know and sentiments are definitely running high on this all around yeah, I, I, I mean, I hate election times have always drove me crazy because <laughs> really all we ever hear is the extreme right, the extreme left. And, uh, it, you know, for somebody who's trying to a citizen that's trying to get an accurate, unbiased idea of what's going on, it's very difficult because you, you have these extreme views on both sides. And, and the worst part of it is those who know. Those who are in a position of no in the government are, are not able to really uh, express their true and their true their true uh, perceptions uh, because again the, the government is going to prevent them from from talking to the media and and telling things like the way like they are. 
Alrighty. Well, thank you so much, Jerry Robinette, uh, retired, and you're still working. <laughs> retired, former, uh, it's, was it special agent in charge? You guys have those long titles. Special I agent know, in charge, I know, I right? Know. Give them your title. Give them your title. <laughs> Uh, it was special agent in charge. Um, that's a special. <laughs> All right, Jerry. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And, you know, we hope to be talking to you again soon in the coming weeks. Sounds good. Y'all have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again for another edition of Immigration Crisis, the fight for the southern border. We will have a new episode coming up next week on Thursday. For now, from Eagle Pass, Texas, I'm Jamie Virgen for Sinclair Broadcasting. We'll see you next time.